Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning, this is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business come together with the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. I know you know the drill. My guests that I'm very pleased to say are Alexander de Carvalho, I'm going to be calling him Alex, and Daniel Korsky. He will stay as Daniel. Founders of Public, a company helping startups transform the public sector through technology. As ex-special advisor to David Cameron and having worked for the UN and the Foreign Office in Bosnia, Iraq and Afghanistan, Daniel's long been passionate about delivering better public services. When he met Alexander, whose background is in private equity, they shared a frustration with the slow government uptake of new tech. Daniel and Alex set up Public, a London-based venture capital firm in 2016, to give more digital entrepreneurs access to the UK GovTech market, which they estimate will be worth £20 billion by 2025. As Daniel says, getting more startups to solve public problems will allow new technologies to deliver better, cheaper and more easy-to-use public services. That sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Gentlemen, hello. Thank Thank you for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. Start with you, Alex. Just tell me a a little bit about what it is that public is, what it does and why you and Daniel decided to to go for it, to, to create this new thing. Sure. I mean, I guess, as you said in your introduction, we came together with a real shared frustration that technology and government were not meeting in a place to drive innovation, to transform the way citizens and state can interact. From my perspective, I'd spend a lot of time after private equity in startups, um, and I was just looking for a, a understanding about how to get into the public sector and how to start explaining the power of technology to people within, within government, which is when I was serendipitously introduced to Daniel, um, who obviously, from his background, knows a lot about um, government. And we sat down for lunch, ordered the same thing, as it turned out, and from that meeting, um, <laughs> took it further. And I think what we've, what we've strived to do now is create an understanding on both sides of this chasm that startups can sell to government and government should look to startups um, for the innovation that they desperately need. Uh, what did you order, Daniel, that day? Do you remember? That's important to me. It is, it is. I'm you trying to remember, remember that. Both it's, it's terrible. It, it, was, it was some kind of fish salad. It was a, salad. It was a, poke, you, it was a poke bowl. You see, right, he remembers. Poke, no, he's good like that. Now he, that. That upsets me already for him, that he remembers. No, he's anyway, good like that. No. He is good. Now tell me, Daniel, obviously you came from within the, uh, the, the government machine, uh, many years working with David Cameron, yeah. uh, previous Prime Minister. Being inside of it, what did you observe? I mean, I think the, the Cameron administration that I was a part of was an incredibly modernizing and reforming one. And it was trying to say, look, the world has been totally transformed by technology. How do we bring some of that thinking, the dynamism, the energy into government? How do we break with the bad old big ways of, of yesteryear? Um, so, so I think we started off on a very important journey, which was to kind of break off uh, relationships with large, big incumbents that weren't really delivering for the state and ultimately citizens. Um, but I think I thought that the journey was incomplete; um, that there was only so much one could do inside government. Because at the end of the day, um, if you want new players to uh, have a chance at transforming public services, those players also need to be in a position to do so. They need to have the money to do so. They need to have the wherewithal, the understanding, the insight. And I sort of felt that we'd gone as far as we probably could inside government, and it was now time to come build out the market. Because if you think 
um, that the answer is more competition and newer players in the market, then it only really works if that market is ready and equipped to deliver new kinds of services. My sense is also that um, government, by definition, is bureaucratic. It doesn't mean to be, but it's big. There's many things to do. It's complicated in the 21st century, running countries, running different states. There's just so many moving pieces. There aren't many entrepreneurs in government, Daniel. Not that I've met. I mean, many years ago, I, I interviewed actually Lord Young, who was referred to, I think, by David Cameron as the dude, and he had his own office in the. And you probably crossed over at that point. Very good friend. When of ours. did you? I, I figured he would be. When did you figure out that you were actually pretty entrepreneurial yourself? I think um, that I probably realised early on after having tried to change lots of systems and policies and organisations that I I probably wasn't yet an entrepreneur, but I probably wasn't an in, an entrepreneur that the way I wanted to to bring about change was in a very kind of entrepreneurial way um, which is to say look for solutions that don't exist look for connections that aren't yet there look for ways of examining a problem from a totally different perspective um, you started saying that government is known for entrepreneurs I mean the reality is government is responsible for lots of very important things and it has to um, be very deliberate about how it spends money making sure that uh, the delivery of services is equitable that people aren't cheated just by dint of where they're from or who they are these are important weighty you know priorities and um, as a result you have to kind of operate a system uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain in a certain manner um, but I do I do think that increasingly as our society has changed and as there's become more focus on dynamism and entrepreneurship in the private sector, so our public sector is changing too. And people inside the public sector look to the private sector and they say, oh, that's another way of working. Well, increasingly, how can we work like that? Now, Alex, you mentioned that you have a number of businesses in your cohort. How often does the cohort change? Is it annually or do you just keep a bunch of businesses in there for as long as they need to be? So we take on 10 to 15 companies every year and we work with them actively for six months and then more in a alumni style approach for the further six months while we reset improve and set up ourselves for the next intake mm. um, so right now we've done that twice we're right in the process of opening applications for the third cohort in the uk and and people always ask you know what will it take to get invested in you're the investors what do you look for what are the simple two or three things that are always top of the list of criteria yeah so i think i think it's worth stepping back and, and you know we talk about startups we work with companies that use technology to improve public services and what is what is transformed in the last 5 10 years is the way in which one can build a tech company nowadays i think the word startup is sometimes misdiagnosed by the public sector and by investors at large that you know, these, these are companies that are building on really secure infrastructure that can deliver really innovative features in a really fast and effective way, uh, both from a cost perspective and an outcome perspective. And so when we're looking at companies, we're obviously starting at who are leading these companies. People remain the most important part of any company. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking at the absolute opportunities that those companies are looking to solve. And if you have a very large opportunity to be solved by very smart people using the latest technology in a smart and sensible way, that is an incredibly good business case to back. Now, some of that is qualitative, Daniel, in, mm. in the sense of people. Uh, and opportunity can be can be diagnosed in a quantitative way, but it's also a gut feel, isn't it? And, and from what I know of you, you're relatively gut feel guy, but you worked in governments we've, we've already established, so you need data. Where do you naturally go as a partnership? Who kind of goes, yeah, I like them, or is it, is it a very similar process that you both go through from a, from, I mean, from a thought perspective? I think it's it's um I think we have a very unique partnership in that we both have our respective areas of expertise but we also 
invite each other onto each other's territory um and we're not very as it were um proprietorial about um you know what we are doing you know what i'm doing and what alex is doing i guess i i spend more of my time thinking about where the public sector is going where those opportunities are not just in terms of what is uh, a live opportunity now but you know what can we imagine government needing over the next two three five six eight years and i think when you say alex you spend more time trying to figure out how the companies that we're working with could fill that space what kind of technology they need to kind of provide what kind of people they need to, to build that business no, i mean I, I rely on daniel and a few other people on our team max hannah to really get an understanding of what is coming down the pipeline per se on the government side and then with the part of our team that is really focused on understanding startups uh, ed um, mark and andy our cto we start looking really at how are these companies playing into the opportunities that our more government-sided friends can see. And that combination is very important. But sort of back to your question on judging people, mm. I think we let everyone in the team come to a perspective mm. on do we want to work with these people? Because, mm. you know, what we embark on is a 12-month active program of working with people. And if that if that bond isn't there, or that gelling isn't there, it never is going to be there. And I think, I think one of the things that we've been successful in is bringing a lot of opinions to the table and, and, and managing uh, from, a, from an invest from, from a funnel of 400 plus companies that we see every year finding those 10 or 15 entrepreneurs that we really mm. want to back and work with as you're speaking it's clear that you take this very seriously in a good way and i read a quote and and for, for those people listening who don't know you're, you're part of the heineken family and you had a very from a very young age you had a you have a role i think you're a, some a director still yes. in, in the business and the quote here from the i think it was the standard uh, last year the heineken role is a huge responsibility it made me grow up faster than other people you're a young guy i mean both of you are young guys but is there a where's the fun I mean, you've got obviously a hell of a lot of responsibility, just even with you know, by, by virtue of where the family is. But this this itself looks like a serious business. Do the two of you also have a giggle? <laughs> There's your answer. But you know what I mean. I mean, in there is a serious business, but there must be moments when it's ridiculous. Well, he's going to give giggle over the fact that you called him young and not me. <laughs> <laughs> he's obviously younger. Responsibility can go two ways, right? You can either have fun with it and enjoy it and embrace it, or you can be crushed buy it mm. and it doesn't fit everyone I, I guess i'm lucky that i enjoy responsibility you wear it well i do better when i feel responsible for things mm. if i feel less responsible i get a little bit bored uh, so but I, but it is not to say that that sort of level of responsibility is everyone's cup of tea i've just embraced it and enjoyed it worked to enjoy it i think it's the best way of putting it that's well put stay with me for more from my business shapers is alex de Carvalho and daniel korski they're coming back in a couple of minutes by popular demand. That's, that's my demand. But first, we're going to hear a taster from the next new Sessions podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms. It's Paddy O'Connell again, with the help of Mish Gondorea, exploring the world of the gig economy. The new Sessions with Paddy O'Connell. In partnership with Mish Gondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just FM. Hello, I'm Paddy O'Connell, and you're listening to the new Sessions from Mish Gondorea. Each week, we have an in-depth look at a key item of law which is hitting the headlines. Today, we're talking about the gig economy, and it's all about the way we earn money in the modern age. And here to discuss is Susanna Kintish. She's employment partner at Mish Gondorea. Hello there, Susanna. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Susanna, it's, uh, it's, if I think of a sliding scale where I'm an employer and I want to exert as much sort of influence on my staff, employees, workers to get my brand right, the more I stipulate how I want them to behave, am I moving them more towards employed status with the more I give them instruction? 
It's really interesting. I mean, I think if if your brand is solely external facing, then you might not have a problem. But where you have a brand that has got very strong values and and it and its um, values permeate the entire organisation, then the more stipulations you have around how your workforce conducts itself. So, for example, the face it presents to customers, how um you know the the appearance before customers. The more the more stipulations you have around that, the more likely you are to move. Um, your workforce along the spectrum towards worker or even employee status. So that's the real reality now, that everything comes at a price. That's right. It's quite difficult to reconcile having a very strong brand um, with with having genuinely self-employed. The New Sessions podcast with Paddy O'Connell from Mishkondorea. Find more of the New Sessions podcasts dealing with key legal matters on iTunes. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this programme again. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your podcast provider, you can enjoy the full archive. But back to today's guests, I promised them earlier, here they are. Uh, Alex Carvalho and Daniel Korski, founders of Public, a company that's helping startups transform the public sector. Daniel, in previous iterations of your life, you you were in government, as I said, but you also have been abroad um, in war-torn areas. Um, You worked with the late Paddy Ashton, who I know you formed a very strong relationship with. You worked with some incredible people. What's it like moving from the spotlight and big names and things that affect everybody that we read about to something which has still got some publicity but is different? You're now in the trenches a little bit more. There's less of a spotlight on you. And you're kind of having to, you know, really hustle around and and fight a bit every day. Has that been a sea change for you? It's definitely been a sea change. I mean, you go from working on things that are nationally and sometimes even internationally important. um, But at the same time, you um, have the security of a salary uh, and the comfort of a structure around you. Um, You go from that to something which is nationally uh, unimportant and uh, entirely irrelevant internationally, but it is existential to you because you have to build up everything around you. You know, when Alex and I started this journey, you know, we didn't have anything. There weren't, as most entrepreneurs find, um, there weren't phones or printers or laptops or offices. And if you come from organizations where you're used to that, um, you kind of have to go on a journey to build that. So you go from something that is nationally important but secure for you personally to something that is nationally unimportant but absolutely mm. <laughs> existential to mm. you. And so that's a sort of shift you have to get used to. Um, I, I, I think I always needed to find something that um, was uh, about more than just, you know, making money. I've been committed to you know, public service all my life, and I struggled with the idea that I would leave government and then go and do something wholly in the private sector. And so I think the creation of public, I think for both of us, was the perfect marriage of you know, a private sector uh, you know, instrument with a public sector purpose. Mm. Uh, and so that allowed me to kind of maintain some of the um, values and priorities that I had in my previous life. And for you, Alex, obviously much more in the private sector. You hadn't had that, you know, the background that that, that Daniel has had. You're a co-founder, I believe, in uh, Doctify as well. No, um, my wife would kill me for saying oh, that. So no. what I was it? there when it started. Oh, okay, good. What an honest Certainly man. Certainly not a co-founder. Okay, so you're there, but you've been an investor in that business. Yes. Um, what's it like bootstrapping? 
What's it been like to get the phones connected, the printers and all these other things? How has that been for you? I guess the more interesting part, which people don't talk about often, is how many no's you get. Mm. That's the most interesting part. If you come out of an organization and start a new one, and no one says it's going to work, one or two will believe in you again and again. A few people will believe you here, but then you'll get 100 that will never work. Or there's no way you'll break up a procurement process. Or government will takes too long to buy from startups. And over time, I think, you know, we committed to banging our heads against the wall until either they fell off or we were gray out, gray-haired and grumpy. Um, you know, we are making small inroads and proving the naysayers wrong and helping the yaysayers, you know, make make a return on on their belief in us. So, that, how have you dealt with the no's? Because there have obviously been a lot of them. What have you done personally to process those and come out the other side? You need a good partner. I I, I do not recommend starting business alone. Often. You really need, you know, the number of times we've come back and said, that was a good meeting, that I had a bad day. And if you sort of net off the positives and the negatives, you keep going. Um, this, is a, this is a tough space that we're operating in, trying to break open um, the mindset in government that this is the right place to find the innovation. And also in the startups and the investors that back the startups saying that public sector, you know, a very large chunk of GDP across all um, sectors of the economy is a place to be selling your business into. Um, and I guess like the support that we give each other is actually very important. We may not say that enough. Oh, lovely. Look at that. They're <laughs> going to do a fist pump. You can hug if you like. Come on, bring it in. <laughs> a little fist pump did actually happen there. Here on Jazz Shapers. How wonderful. Stay with me for much more from my business shapers. That's Daniel and Alex. We're talking about partnership, uh, startups, uh, dealing with no's and all sorts of really interesting stuff. Time for some music right now. It's Bobby Hutchison with Montara. That was Bobby Hutchison. We haven't played him before, I don't think, on Jazz Shapers with Montara. I've got Daniel and Alex in front of me, the co-founders of Public. This is a new space, a brave new world, which, of course, isn't that new. I mean, the technology and digital has been around forever. We've been talking about, you know, we had the first dot-com boom about 20 years ago, and then there was kind of a full start, and we're going again. Ideas, Daniel, are at a premium. Where do you get yours from? I mean, you say it's a new space. I mean, well, I kind of said it with a bit of tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah, you no, know, exactly. No, I mean, the way we think about it is, you know, we obviously didn't invent public sector IT. You know, that's been around, you know, from the '40s and onwards. But I think what we were able to do was to help reframe um, the sector as not just about public sector IT, but about gov tech, a bit like fintech and ad tech, like thinking about it as a as a sector that is open to the innovation that new players. Bring. And I just think that's very w- worthwhile remembering. I mean, we we, talk, we say we didn't invent GovTech, but we probably made it sexy. Mm. And I think framing things is incredibly important to allow for ideas to, to come in and for different kinds of people who may be thinking slightly different about all problems to have a chance to kind of make their peace. Government used technology. They just happened to use technology that banking, hotels, taxis, restaurants used 20, 30 years ago. And because of the lack of pressure necessarily that has been implied to government to transform and improve and outcompete. Um, you're, you're, you're left with legacy technology that is not delivering. And as sort of citizen demands, budgetary pressures sort of come together in a perfect storm, the only out is innovation. And the only way of finding innovation is outside your existing supplier base who are less incentivized to spend money making things better for you. And how do you ensure that you are at the cutting edge of that innovation that you're in? How do you ensure that you can spot the winners beyond the criteria we talked about? Because 
if we could all do that, we'd all have invested in Amazon back in whenever it was they founded. <laughs> we didn't. I mean, I didn't. Uh, you know, you can't necessarily see it, but how you obviously got to try and do some of that. Yep. So, I mean, the, the benefit for us is that this is a tough space, as I said before. And so there aren't that many people looking at it still. We'd like more people to look at this space. But we're able through our application process for our accelerator program, through all the companies that we meet inadvertently, to see four, five, six hundred companies a year and really understand which ones could make a difference. And so when we go and back one of those businesses and commit to working with them for six to 12 months, it's because we see something there and we see a contract sitting somewhere in government, which could be the difference between that business making X million and 10X million a year. Which means in a way, Daniel, you have to also know what's cooking properly in government. Mm. It's not good superficial knowledge of government contracts is not enough. No, exactly. Or rather, I mean, government areas of, of, of application. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I remember the, sort of some of the early conversations we had when we were introducing our respective kind of insights to each other. I remember at some point you said, could you just write down, you know, how the government works? And I said, I'd have to spill like 20 years of working and knowledge onto the page. I, I, I can do some of that, but I but some of it is much more, is much deeper. Um, and I also think it's important not to just look for what is what the market currently thinks that it needs. Our role is to say, okay, the market currently thinks it's need, it needs this, but actually it needs to go on a long-term journey in, into a different direction. You know, one example of a company we backed uh, called Panopticon, which, which works to transform the way you track ex-offenders and support them through the gate and to rehabilitate, perhaps in future being able to create the technical you know, foundation for a sort of set of wor- virtual prisons um, where you can you know, help them but also protect the population at large outside of the walls of a traditional prison. Now, government is not going to tender right now saying, you know, who can build us a virtual prison. It's going to tender on a series of, you know, more tactical contracts around, you know, ankle bracelets. Mm. But the question is, how can you build a business that then starts there and, and goes, you know, the longer, the longer way? Let me just ask quickly, Alex, I know you, I don't want to pick up and then come back to you in our final chat, but are you a patient person? Because it sounds like you would need to be. Not just to work with Daniel, obviously, I mean, but, but more broadly to, to play that long game, because this is a long game. I think you need to have patience and energy. I don't think it's enough to sit and be patient. Um, I think you need to be patiently proactive, if that's possible. You're going to face a lot of setbacks, but the patience is to continue to push. If you, It sounds counterintuitive, but we, we've got deep conviction that someone is going to make this happen, and we hope that it's us. And so our patience is just how do we keep playing um, as opposed to getting frustrated I think the the opposites of patience is frustration that's not going to get you anywhere hold that thought Daniel be patient for a moment because I know we're going to we're going to go to some a bit more music in a moment and then we're going to come back to you we'll go to you first Daniel and Alex as well so you don't feel left out plus we're playing a track from Shirley Horn that's all coming up in just a moment here on Jazz, Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mish Kondorea. it's business but it's personal Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear And he shows them pearly white Just a jackknife has McHeath, dear And he keeps it out of sight 
that was Shirley Horn with her take on the brilliant Mac the Knife. I've just got a few more minutes with Alex and Daniel, my business shapers, they co-founders of Public. Um, give me a flavour, Alex, of some of the specifics of the companies you're working with and the sorts of things that they're trying to impact. Sure. And like I said, I think anecdotes are always useful to explain a little bit about the power that, that um, this new technology um, can bring. I'll just give two quickly. Uh, one is a business called Echo which allows you to have repeat prescriptions delivered to your door. At first instance, great, convenient, instead of having to go to the pharmacy to pick mm. up my, my recurring uh, prescription, comes through my door. If you, th- if you step back and go further, what does Echo as a platform then have? It has adherence rates because it can build a little bit of behavioral science into your app and say, did you take your drugs today? Did you take your drugs? Don't forget your drugs. Very, very important. If you think about drug recalls, very expensive. Who's taking these drugs in this postcode? That's where the bad batch was delivered. Send out a push notification and you've solved the problem. So what starts as a point solution becomes a public health answer very quickly when you use new platforms that are collecting data in an interesting way. One other business, um, and we've got lots and people can always ask in emails about what we're doing, free up access to your earned income in real time. Why is it that you get paid 12 times a year? Why can't you be paid every day? You've done the work, you're sitting there. The reason you can't is one, because the company likes the float on their balance sheet, and two, because old payroll systems just haven't upgraded themselves to allow for the seamless transfer of capital. We think we've deli- um, developed and, and are working with a, a brilliant founder um, on a solution for that, integrating with open banking APIs and doing a bunch of other things, so that suddenly, if you have um, an unpayable bill in the middle of the month, and about 50% of families in the UK cannot afford an unexpected bill of £250 or more, why can't you draw down a portion of the income that you've already earned that is sitting as wages payable on a pretty highly um, secured part of the balance sheet of an employer? Um, and so freeing up um, capital when you need it will avoid you going for high-cost short-term credit, which, as we know, is a huge drain on the economy. Brilliant. And as you said, you mentioned email, but people can go onto the website as well and have of course. a look and see what the companies, other companies are doing. Um, beyond the UK, I know you did your first GovTech Summit in November, November of last year in uh, lovely Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, lovely in the autumn as well as the sun, <laughs> summer, I'm sure. What other plans have you got, Daniel, for shaping this business internationally? One of the key things we wanted to do was to convene the market in a different way. And that's why we organised the GovTech Summit. And we were lucky to be able to do it in cooperation with the French president, but uh, also with the attendance of the Canadian Prime Minister. Sure. Shameless name dropping. No, I mean we have to. I, mean, I, have, to, know, I have to show you that there was a real thing. Did you have lunch with them? I think you I'll send you the did. picture. Oh, you did. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> send, send, send me the picture. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Just to show you that it was a real thing, but uh, but no, but it was a big part of also saying you know the UK has been at the forefront of digitizing public services, and therefore there is an opportunity to you know lead uh, in other markets and help great british companies get to other places so we are not just organizing our summit in paris but we're scaling our accelerator program govstart uh, in uh, france we're opening an office in uh, copenhagen denmark as well in order to run our uh, you know program up there and we have other plans to scale more internationally because we genuinely think the uk has been at the forefront of this sort of process of digitizing public services mm-hmm. and there's a great opportunity to scale and make public not just a British business but genuinely a European business at a time when it's probably valuable to have more people you know spreading themselves across uh, you know across Europe rather than be confined on the island or on the continent yeah brilliant and that's a really important vision isn't it whatever happens politically we're going to need much more of exactly. that uh, gentlemen it's been a real pleasure having you both it's flown by because there's two of you we, we need another hour just before I let you go, your song choice, and there's a bit of a story here, because inadvertently it seems like you've both chosen the same one. It's a bit that's, freaky, isn't it? That's not just freaky, Daniel. There's some, <laughs> we, we, I've got psychologists we can bring in later. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about what you've chosen, Alex, and why. 
But I mean, I was shocked when you asked us to suggest a song and I sent an email and Daniel sent an email and we had the same song. So I mean, Aretha Franklin, Say a Little Prayer, it's um, it's the song my wife and I chose to walk down the aisle. I should say it was a short aisle in the in the registry office, but <laughs> so we didn't get to hear this whole song. So I'm looking forward to hearing it in its entirety. We were looking, what should we, what should we walk down the aisle to? And this song spoke to us. And for you, Mr. Korski? I just think um, coming to uh, to the point <clears throat> that we discussed earlier, which is, you know, how do you cope with adversity? How do you cope with long sales cycles? How do you cope with the arrows and, and, and slings of outrageous fortune? And I think the way you best cope with it is just to be positive, to be energetic, to be uplifted uh, and uplifting uh, of others. And this song just speaks to that. It's like it's always morning when Aretha Franklin sings this song and the day is going to be great. That was Aretha Franklin and Say a Little Prayer, the song choice of both of my business shapers today. That's Alex de Carvalho and Daniel Korski, the co-founders of Public. They talked about the importance of dealing with no and how you handle rejection and how important it is to have a partner in that scenario, of reframing things, how innovation is new by definition and needs to be reposited in order for it to actually connect and to work, and of being patiently proactive, that critical balance between pushing but also knowing when to hold. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.